YV, Whitehall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Monica Sandresky. And I'm Todd Moe. The Adirondack Rail Trail is getting another influx of money to finish the route between Saranac Lake and Tupper. Also, the governor and Democratic lawmakers want to increase disability benefits for injured workers for the first time in 35 years. This benefit has not been updated since 1989. I always joke, that's when Taylor Swift was born, right? The Adirondack Park is one of the last spots in the eastern U.S. that doesn't deal with light pollution. Lake Placid is trying to keep it that way. And SUNY Adirondack is honoring longtime adjunct professor Bruno Lavardier in a new exhibit. We'll talk with his son about his father's legacy from Benedictine monk to bohemian to Adirondack artist. It was interesting for me to sort of discover a lot of, of old journals and old documents and, and pictures and slides of work I'd never seen before. It kind of helped shed a lot of light on the work that I grew up with. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement, and financial planning solutions, longrunwealth.com, and Fisher, Bissett, Muldowney, and McArdle, attorneys and counselors at law with offices in Malone, Tupper Lake, and Saranac Lake, 800-941-5001. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. SUNY Potsdam is continuing to downsize due to its $9 million deficit in a statement issued on Friday. SUNY Potsdam's president, Suzanne Smith, said the school is doing what it can to limit staffing cuts, but said some cuts are necessary, according to the United University Professions Union, which represents some of the school's employees. Seven staff positions have been cut. The union is calling the cuts a choice, not an inevitability. Last fall, SUNY Potsdam revealed that it needed to discontinue degree programs and staff to deal with its deficit. Since that announcement, the university has cut nine degree programs, including chemistry, physics, and art history. Enrollment at SUNY Potsdam is down by 43% since 2010, while staffing levels have remained the same up until the school year. The Adirondack Rail Trail is getting another big influx of state cash. Governor Kathy Hochul announced the project will receive $13 million to help finish the trail between Saranac Lake and Tupper Lake. Emily Russell has the details. Governor Hochul was in Lake Placid last week to promote her budget priorities. She also announced funding that's already been secured for the Adirondack Rail Trail, which runs from Lake Placid to Tupper Lake. 34 miles take you through paradise. Who could say no to that? Uh, It's extraordinary. The first phase of the rail trail was finished late last year. Crews completed the 10-mile stretch between Lake Placid and Saranac Lake. This year, they'll shift their focus to the remaining 24 miles to Tupper. 
The recent influx of state money will help pay for trail construction, as well as upgrades to the former Saranac Lake train depot, which is located right along the rail trail in the village. The $13 million for the rail trail comes from the Environmental Bond Act that voters approved back in 2022. One project that Hochul is trying to secure funding for is to repave the Adirondack Lodge Road, which leads to the most popular trailhead in the state. We'll tap into the Environmental Protection Fund to resurface uh, the Adirondack Lodge Road, the gateway of the high peaks. We want to make sure that's in pristine condition. That project would cost $1.2 million and is part of Hochul's proposed state budget. A final state spending plan is due by April 1st. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio, Lake Placid. Governor Hochul is also proposing in her state budget to increase the temporary disability leave benefit for injured workers. It would be the first increase in 35 years and would give it parity with the state's paid family leave program. Karen DeWitt reports. Temporary disability leave is for New Yorkers who are unable to work for a period of time due to an injury or illness that occurred outside of their job. The benefit is also eligible for people with pregnancy-related conditions. The maximum amount of money paid to a worker per week has been $170 for 35 years. When taxes and other expenses like Social Security contributions are taken out, the weekly amount is considerably lower. State Senator Jeremy Cooney says that amount is not enough for a household to pay their bills, and it needs to be raised. He's sponsoring legislation to do that. This benefit has not been updated since 1989. I always joke, that's when Taylor Swift was born, right? Cooney says he's delighted that Governor Hochul has incorporated many of the bill's provisions into her state budget. Hochul wants to increase the maximum weekly benefits over five years and eventually tie it to the statewide average weekly wage. That's currently over $1,700. Cooney says it will be easier to make the change if it's part of the state's multi-billion dollar spending plan. We're pretty excited that we're seeing this issue become elevated. Cooney says most people aren't aware of how little the benefit pays until they need it. He says it was brought to his attention from a constituent shortly after he was elected to office in 2020. He says single-income households and lower-income households who are living paycheck to paycheck have to make difficult choices about providing for basic necessities like rent, car payments, and food. We're allowing people who are injured outside of the workplace to have a wage that's living wage uh, so that they can provide for themselves and their families, they can heal and then rejoin our workforce. The temporary disability payments are far lower than the more recently enacted paid family leave program. That pays a maximum of over $1,000 a week. Rebecca Hanna, who lives on Long Island with her husband and two children, used the temporary disability benefit during both of her pregnancies for childbirth and postpartum recovery. She says, ironically, if she were to have another child now and her husband took paid family leave to take care of the newborn, he would receive significantly more money per week than she would. Let's say I needed to use disability for uh, childbirth and postpartum recovery again. I would get $170 a week. Meanwhile, my husband would get more than six times that amount through paid family leave. We're talking over $1,000 a week to care for me or to bond with our new child. It's not fair. It's not equitable. 
And it's it's a tear in our social safety net that really needs to be mended. Hannah says unlike most people who need temporary disability benefits, she had time to plan for leave at the end of her pregnancies. She cut her household's budget to save money in advance. And she also had access to a supplemental short-term disability plan offered by her employer, which not everyone has. I was lucky because it was a pregnancy-related condition. I knew about it ahead of time. And so I had several months to be able to prepare financially for a period of time where I wouldn't be getting a paycheck. um, And what I would be getting through disability benefits would only be a fraction of my weekly pay. While New York State pays staff to administer the program, the weekly benefits are paid through contributions from workers and employers. They would rise slightly under the proposal. Senator Cooney says going forward, he'd like the rate of temporary disability benefits to be tied to the rate of inflation, just like it is now for paid family leave. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's coming up on 10 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, we'll talk with the son of longtime Southern Adirondack artist Bruno Laverdier. He's been re- being remembered at SUNY Adirondack this season with an exhibit of his lifelong work. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. That's Sal Sarmiento out of Potsdam. Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Foundation, making grants to nonprofits that address community issues of child care, attainable housing, career pathways, basic needs, and more. Adirondackfoundation.org. And by Guidebolt Realty, located in Saranac Lake, where health, history, and the arts meet in the Adirondacks. Your guide to Adirondack real estate, guideboltrealty.com. Bass fishing tournaments on the St. Lawrence River have generated about $140 million in revenue for the region. That's according to Don Meisner, the Director of Fishing and Tourism for the town of Messina. Meisner's recent comments at a town board meeting were reported by North Country Now. Professional bass fishing tournaments frequently make stops along the St. Lawrence River, a spot that often ranks among the top bass fishing locations in the country. Messina is set to host the last stop of the Bass Fishing Professional Tour over six days in the beginning of August. That tournament tends to attract tens of thousands of visitors to the region. One of the best parts of living in a rural area are the dark skies, right? Those nights when 
You can see thousands of stars, the whole Milky Way splashed from horizon to horizon. But those dark skies are becoming increasingly rare. A recent American Astronomical Association study, or rather society study, found that light pollution has increased by about 10% in just the last decade. The Adirondack Park is one of the last dark sky strongholds left in the eastern U.S., as Amy Fireisel reports, Lake Placid is trying to make sure it stays that way. If you look at a light pollution map of the United States, there are very few dark pockets left in the country, and just two east of the Mississippi, northern Maine and the Adirondack Park. To safeguard that resource, Lake Placid's Development Commission created a dark sky committee to look at light pollution issues. John Winkler is the chair of that committee. He says it sent him down a lighting rabbit hole, and it gives him a lot of hope. You know, unlike air pollution or water pollution, where things build up and then it's really hard to reverse, the best you can kind of hope to do is, you know, get to a a leveling off. With light pollution, it's actually super simple to reverse. For example, imagine a parking lot light fixture that floods neighboring houses. All you got to do is put some shielding on that and you're still lighting up the parking lot. But now you've saved that person's, um, you know, light trespass issue. Winkler says less intrusive lighting and darker skies would be a boon for local residents and could also be a real selling point for Lake Placid as a destination. If people care about seeing the night sky and, and, and the stars and the Milky Way, um, you know, this is a natural place for them to go if they live on the East Coast. Some communities out West even market their dark skies. The Colorado Plateau has generated billions of dollars worth of um, night sky-oriented tourism. Of course, that's still a ways off. These days, Lake Placid's Dark Sky Committee thinks about replacing bulbs, shielding floodlights, and getting lighting systems on timers. Their first efforts have been focused on education. Nobody really thought about it or thinks about it. And so there's lots and lots of low-hanging fruit to change the dynamic without negatively impacting people's lives. They've made handouts about dark sky lighting principles and are giving them to local construction companies and contractors. They've started talking with the business community and are hoping to get charts explaining how to pick the right LED bulb into local retail stores. Once you're aware of it, it becomes very simple. You know, Every time you replace bulbs outside, you can make a big difference, right? The committee is making recommendations to the town and village boards. One of those recommendations will be to pursue getting Lake Placid certified as a dark sky community by the International Dark Sky Association. There are only 40 dark sky communities in the entire U.S., and it's the Lake Placid Committee's pie-in-the-sky goal. We thought this would be a good you know, kind of target to set, an, an ambitious target, um, but a target that we could set that would give us you know, some third-party, you know, well-validated guidelines to shoot for. Those guidelines would include getting a lighting ordinance worked into the land use code, inventorying all outdoor lighting in Lake Placid, and establishing an ongoing light pollution monitoring program. Winkler says it will be a multi-year process. And, and, you know, it's going to take a long time to get there. There's a lot that we will need to do. It's, you know, a lot of incremental change. But I think that it's something that, you know, I I think the community could rally behind. Winkler says a place to start for Lake Placid residents and folks across the region is to look at your own exterior lights. If you stand outside your house and you look at the lights you have, can you see bare bulbs? 
And if you can, it's probably a light that could be better shielded. And then the second thing is, do you actually need to have the lights that you have on at night, on at night? If not, remove them or turn them off for a while. See if you miss them. You can make your own neighborhood a little darker for yourself and your neighbors. Amy Feierisel, North Country Public Radio. You're listening to Northern Lights here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, Sudi and Arondak opens a special exhibit this week in Queensbury to honor a longtime art professor. After that, it's Bird Note. We'll check out one of the earliest known fossil records of a modern bird. The skull looks chicken-like in the front and duck-like in the back. More details coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Yeah, cloudy skies uh, the next few days uh, and evenings as well with highs this afternoon, upper 20s, near 30, light winds out of the east-northeast. Lows around 20 tonight, milder tomorrow and Thursday. Highs in the 30s tomorrow with clouds and light winds out of the southwest. Maybe a light chance of some light snow or sleet uh, Wednesday night into Thursday about a 60% chance of a light wintry mix again Thursday with highs near 40. Isolated snow showers on Friday, turning colder, highs in the 20s. The extended forecast for Saturday and Sunday, the first weekend of February, partly cloudy skies with highs in the 20s. Right now, here in Canton, clouds in 26 degrees. SUNY Adirondack is honoring the late Bruno Laverdiere, a longtime adjunct professor who died in 2022 with an exhibition of his works. Rites of Passage opens Thursday in the college's visual arts gallery in Queensbury. In a press release, Rebecca Pelchar, director of SUNY Adirondack's visual arts gallery, says Laverdiere's cool teaching style and approachability made him popular among students throughout his more than 30-year tenure. Rites of Passage chronicles Laverdier's career, beginning with his time as an artist monk in the 1950s, his career as artist bohemian in Greenwich Village, and finally, artist mystic in the Adirondacks. The show includes dozens of his works of art and highlights sculpture, drawing, and print. Yeah, Bruno Lavardier had a very interesting life. He started his artistic career as a Benedictine monk for 14 years. He taught as Brother Bruno at Greenwich House Pottery in New York City and Penland School of Crafts in North Carolina. His artwork has been exhibited around the country, and he studied art around the world, including stone circles in the U.K. and ancient churches around Europe. Laverdier is is recognized for his megalithic ceramic sculptures, stoneware, and commemorative valentines. I caught up by phone with Bruno's son, Julian Laverdier. Julian is an artist and designer who divides his time between New York City and his family's home in Hadley in the southern Adirondacks. And he'll give a special presentation about his father's work during an opening reception Thursday night from 5 to 7 at SUNY Adirondack. For me, the interesting thing was that it was a lot about learning about him. He 
the monastic life that he had before I ever came around was very unknown to me. I mean, he didn't talk much about it, and he there was no religious practices at home, and um, you know, other than a mystical appreciation for nature, but no no church whatsoever. And after he passed, it was it was interesting for me to sort of discover a lot of of old journals and old documents and uh, pictures and slides of work I'd never seen before that kind of helped shed a lot of light on the work that I grew up with. And I started connecting the dots between this early liturgical work and this later work that was more megalithic in nature, but has this kind of mysticism within it. And so I laid this exhibition out in a sort of series of chapters the way I kind of imagined his life being this monastic chapter and then this sort of bohemian coming of age and then sort of a period when he was building arches and architectural gestures that felt more like monuments and then later in life when he was were kind of reflecting on things that were um, more nostalgic and and memories that felt like that was more of his his own personal mysticism he later in life he he was making um, valentines that he would send to all of his friends every year as sort of prints, uh, multiple multiple pieces. And uh, this practice was kind of interesting to observe because it was the only holiday he ever really celebrated. You know, unlike sending you know, New Year's cards or Christmas cards, he would send these valentines that weren't related to St. Valentine. And they weren't romantic in nature. They were just more like these votives that... Uh, you be in good nature. And um, so the show ends with those, but it begins with these works that are these kind of sacred vessels and tabernacles that he would make when he was a monk. I have to ask, Julian, the, the press release that I got about your father's life and about the exhibit includes this really charming photo of your dad. It looks like he's in a studio. He looks sort of gnomish wearing this conical felted hat and his his beard and round glasses. And he just has kind of a really sort of mischievous or inquisitive <laughs> or childlike look on his face. And it just makes me smile. <laughs> you know, that picture... Um, it's not atypical. I mean, he, the thing that most of his friends would always remember is he had this fantastic laugh, and he would um, kind of find a, um, a joy in almost anything. And I think that's why he was such a good teacher, because he, he had this endless patience and also just sense of humor about life in general. It wasn't, you know, dour or judgmental. It was just this, this like, kind of peaceful pursuit of you know um beauty and uh, natural truths but he he did very much like you know uh, a strange gnome in some ways or, or like a wise old hermit mm-hmm. um and the things that the dots that i was trying to connect in this exhibition as i was putting together were was trying to find the sort of common denominators in his work mm-hmm. And he began making these sacred vessels and uh, and gates. In the monastery, he you know he was building stained glass windows, tabernacle gates, and uh, church cemetery gates, and gates to the the abbey garden. 
and they all were like these had the same bilateral symmetry. They sort of there was a doorway that you would open to get to the sort of inner sanctum. And then as, as I observed his work, and he kind of reinvented that same structure ideologically into these other forms. And so it was interesting for me to kind of discover that the works that you know, were so kind of mysterious to me when I was younger, now I look at them in retrospect, and they all are sort of these gateways, mm-hmm. these archways and passages. And so when I first started thinking about the show, I was like, maybe I should just line them all up, like one long series of doorways you pass through, like as you go from chapter to chapter in your life. At the end, what was so profound to me is that the symbols that he ended up kind of landing on, like these little shrine shapes that had a heart inside, and like I mentioned, these valentines, as though he'd found this, you know, maybe he found his way through this passage and the symbol that he ended up landing on was this heart. And maybe it sounds a bit saccharine, but I think it was like the one common denominator that was sort of a safe bet, no matter what, you know, creed or culture you're part of. It's like this brotherly love or parental love or um, romantic love. So I wanted to, you know, share work with the school that they probably weren't familiar with because often art teachers, they're not there to teach their own art. It's not a master apprentice system. They're there to help students find their own paths. So it's quite likely that a lot of his colleagues had no idea what he was doing, you know, privately. Yeah. And it might be enlightening. Julian Laverdier will give opening remarks about his father, Bruno Laverdier, on Thursday night, starting at 5 o'clock at SUNY Adirondack in Queensbury. Uh, Bruno passed away in 2022, and the exhibit Rites of Passage continues through April 22nd in the Visual Arts Gallery, which is in Dear Love Hall at SUNY Adirondack in Queensbury. And you can check out that really charming photo of Bruno uh, on our website this morning at ncpr.org. 8.26 is the time. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. Many events to take a look at throughout the region, including coming up Friday evening in Saranac Lake. A proper immersive experience with projection art and electronic music. It's called Electro, and it will be at Grizzle Tees in Saranac Lake starting at 8 o'clock. They say come play with large-scale video projection tools and get lost in a world of sound. That's sat, uh Friday evening from 8 until 11 o'clock. If you have uh, any questions, you can find out more from stationadk.com. There's a new exhibit of work by uh, artist Stephen Cobb at the gallery at Lake St. Lawrence Arts on Main Street in Waddington, right on historic Main Street in Waddington. It opens on Thursday as well, February 1st, continues through the 24th, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And on the 24th of February, Stephen will uh, be available to demonstrate his work and uh, discuss some of the pieces that he's created. He uh, he loves the outdoors and fly fishing and has done a lot of landscape scenes through his career. But during the pandemic, he started painting 
the remains of old barns throughout the North Country, and his palette turned to black and white and gray. And so you can check out some of the latest works by Stephen Cobb at uh, the gallery at Lake St. Lawrence Arts Main Street in Waddington starting Thursday. The Old Forge Library is inviting you to participate in their Community Poetry and Art Extravaganza contest. The theme for 2024 is Peace. Submit an original poem or art piece uh, between now and February 9th. The contest is open to students uh, in K-12 through and adults throughout Herkimer, Oneida, and Madison counties and an inlet. And winners in each category will win a monetary prize. That's coming up at the Old Forge Library. So don't forget to get your submission in by February 9th. And we are media sponsor for the Winter Carnival Music Festival at the Waterhole in Saranac Lake. It starts on Friday night, continues through February 11th. It's a series that will feature 14 bands, genre-spanning performances, soul, funk, folk, bluegrass, and a tribute to the Tragically Hip. For tickets and a full list of those bands and performers, check out our website, ncpr.org slash calendar. That theme music means it is the end of the show, but we want to remind you to come out tonight to make your voice heard about community issues. NCPR is partnering with New York Focus, an independent nonprofit newsroom, for a community listening event to better understand the needs of North Country residents. How do you experience news in the North Country and New York State? What are news organizations doing right and how can they improve? Share your thoughts this evening at 6 o'clock at the Town of Potsdam Community Room on Elm Street. That's tonight at 6 at the Town of Potsdam Community Room. To register, visit ncpr.org slash nyfocus. That's ncpr.org slash nyfocus. Stay tuned for more of Morning Edition coming up in just a moment. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Be well.